Well, as we continue in our series, James today is going to talk about wisdom, and he's actually going to compare two types of wisdom, a wisdom of God and a wisdom of what we'll call the flesh. And he's going to compel his readers, hey, if you claim to be wise, then you need to start living like it. And he does that by starting with a question. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. For us to know what James is talking about, we have to understand what he means by wise. Wise is the adjective describing someone who has wisdom. And I think wisdom is best defined as the capacity to understand and function accordingly. You see, wisdom requires an understanding, and it also requires a functioning You have to have both to be wise. And we can all think of people who might have one of these and not the other. There are some of us who like to function. We do a lot of things with no real understanding. I call that the bad mechanic. This is the guy that you you take your car to, and when you go back and pick it up, you're really not sure he did anything. It's just a guy in his garage. He likes to tinker a little bit, but he has no real understanding of what he's doing. You can also, there's some places where you get paid to cut your hair. It's because you go to a cosmetology school and those new enrollees have a pair of scissors that they can function with, but they don't really know what they're doing, right? We all know people who do things and there's no backing for what they're doing. On the flip side, there's people who understand a lot and yet it doesn't lead them into any lifestyle. Customer service reps for credit card companies are hired for this purpose, All they are trained to do is say, Mr. Freeman, I understand. I understand why you're calling today. And when I ask them, can you do something? They say, I understand why you'd ask me to do something. They do nothing for us. And so you hang up, you call again, and you get another customer service rep who somehow understands, but it doesn't change their life. In order to be wise, you have to have understanding and functionality. And we can see this play out in real life. There are people who are great people who do really nice things but they don't have any foundation. And that's what James in chapter one describes as someone who's tossed by the wind. They're a wave that is just tossed by the wind. And then there are people who have a lot of understanding. They know the truth of God and yet it doesn't impact their life. That's what we call a hypocrite. Wisdom is having an understanding and a functioning. We understand who God is. That leads us into a life of worship. We understand who others are, and that leads us into a life of service. And to this person, the person who has truth and truth applied, James says, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. As we unpack what James is calling us and his readers into, it's important that we look at these three phrases. Let them show it. This is actually a command. It's an imperative verb that he uses here. And he's going to give three commands in this section. This is the only one where he tells us what we're supposed to do. And so we can begin to feel the weight. Most commentators would actually say it's, it's better rendered. They must show it. Because in English, when we say let them show it, it sounds like he's inviting us to do something. There's no invitation here. James is saying if you're wise, then you must show it. And he says the way that we must show it is through a good life. A lot of times when we think of the good life, we start going, oh yeah, good life is a day on the lake. Good life is a family picture where the kids are smiling. And we make a good life about all the things that we have or that happen to us. It's no surprise that this isn't James's definition of good life. 
There's typically two words that we can get for life in the New Testament. One speaks of an existence, an actual physical being, and that's zoe. The other speaks of conduct and behavior, anastrophes, and this is exactly what James writes. He says, hey, if you're wise, then you must show it through your good anastrophes, your good conduct, your good behavior. And then I think he actually defines what that good behavior is, what that good conduct looks like. When he says it's deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. If you're reading the ESV, it says humility of wisdom. The point is that wisdom naturally leads to humility. And James is saying that those two are interdependent on one another. You cannot be wise if you're, hum- if you're not humble. And there's no way that humility defines your life if you're not filled with the wisdom of God. You cannot separate these two. And the natural progression for one who is wise is that it would be displayed through their humility. James makes it pretty clear. If you're wise, you have to show it through your good conduct, which is wisdom and seen through a life of humility. He then moves in to begin to compare this wisdom, this wisdom of God, to the wisdom of the flesh. He says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Do not boast about it, deny the truth. If we harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition, I think it's easy for me to read a verse like this and go, oh yeah, I'm fine. Because I, you know, I got a little bit of bitter envy. I might have some selfish ambition in me, but I'm not harboring anything. Let's not be people who are fooled here. James is saying if we have bitter envy or selfish ambition, any of it, then we're not to boast and deny the truth. Bitter envy is just a resentment. It's a jealousy over another person, another success, achievements, and what they've earned. It's crazy how easily we slip into bitter envy. I think if we really were mindful of our conversations and where they went each day, it is so easy for us to begin talking about someone. And then we begin to compare ourselves to them. And from comparison, the next step is envy. As we begin to say, wow, this is a nice house. I wish I had this house. Man, I should have this house. Wow, what a great lifestyle they have. What a great job they have. And our comparisons quickly slip into the point where we're envious over what someone else has. And we don't. I think the really scary thing is, is that we do this with our Christian faith. We can easily become envious about another's per, another person's testimony. In our student ministry, I hear this all the time as students begin to say, wow, that testimony is really strong. That testimony speaks of, of the powerful work of God. I wish I had a story like that. And if we think about it, that is ridiculous, that we begin to compare the redemptive work of Christ and someone's life compared to ours almost as if to say Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is far more powerful in their life than it is mine. And yet this is the easy way to go, that we hear a story and we diminish ourselves because of the envy desiring to have something bigger and better. And he says, talks about selfish ambition. This is just putting an overemphasis, too much of a priority in our own self-advancement. If we really think about it, everything that we've been given, our personality, our jobs, our paychecks, our family, all of that is a gift from the Lord. Selfish ambition is using everything that we have been given for self-gain rather than the advancement of the kingdom. 
Selfish ambition, if you think back to Philippians 2, like Kyle read, is really the opposite of how, Je- or of how Paul describes Jesus, who though he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. You see, the, the person who has bitter envy can't stop looking at others. The person who struggles with selfish ambition can't stop saying, look at me. And to both of those, James says, if you have either of them, do not boast or do not deny the truth. Do not boast about it. Do not boast about this wisdom as if it is wisdom, which would deny the truth. Really, all James is saying is, look, if you've got bitter envy in your heart, if you've got a little bit of selfish ambition, you're actually walking in contradiction to the gospel. Because Jesus sets us free from this. I no longer have to be envious because everything that's been given to me I know is given from the good Father. And and I no longer have to take care of myself because I know the Holy Spirit walks with me and that Jesus in every moment of my life is caring for me. To boast about selfish ambition and envy is a a slap in the face to Jesus' work here for us. And then to boast about it is to deny the truth even more. James continues in his description of the wisdom of the flesh, and he says, such wisdom, such wisdom filled with selfish ambition, wisdom filled with bitter envy, it doesn't come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and it's demonic. I don't know if you've picked it up so far. James is not funny. Not one bit of James is a smiley guy. He's not happy. He always sounds mad, and he just tells you exactly how it is. Such wisdom, a wisdom of selfishness, a wisdom of envy, is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. We can begin to make our list differentiating, seeing the stark difference between the wisdom of God or the wisdom of Christ and the wisdom of the flesh. James tells us the wisdom of Christ is, it comes down from heaven, it's heavenly, This just screams of the Old Testament as you read through the stories of Exodus and the Psalms where wisdom is given through faith, not through experience. And compare that to the wisdom of the flesh, which is earthly. It's based off the creation rather than the creator. We have the wisdom of the Christ, which is spiritual. It's in tune to the Holy Spirit, the guiding of our Lord and Savior compared to the wisdom of the flesh, which is numb and dead to the Savior himself. The wisdom of Christ is godly, whereas the wisdom of the flesh is demonic in opposition to the way of God. You could almost say the wisdom of the flesh is anti-Christ. And we can continue on this graph. As we note everything else that's been said in the section and what he will say, the wisdom of Christ is filled with humility. It's filled with the humility, just like Jesus was. Though he was God, he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant where the wisdom of the flesh is filled with envy and selfish ambition, the very opposite of the motivators that led Christ. The wisdom of Christ is filled with purity, and it leads to purity. We'll see that at the end. But what's interesting is this, the fact that the wisdom of the flesh leads to disorder and evil practice. I think when I read this in a graph form and I look at this right here, I go, yeah, I I agree with that. Wisdom of the flesh, it's got some envy, it's got some selfish ambition, there might be a little disorder and evil practice. But it's actually when I go back to reading my Bible and I look at the verses that I see how poignantly James is talking. 
You see, when he says it in verse 16, he doesn't say, hey, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, Caleb, you might find a little disorder. It's possible that some evil practices would show up. He just says it outright. Hey, where there's envy and selfish ambition, which I'll be the first to admit I have, uh, if you want to welcome to the club, we can do that afterwards and I'll invite you in and we can talk about the ways that I'm envious and have selfish ambition present in my life. But James says where that is, there's also disorder and there's evil practices. A lot of times I reserve such strong words like evil practices for things that I think are, are really bad. Well, I've never murdered anybody, so I don't have evil practices, right? But that isn't taking the scripture seriously. That isn't taking what James says to heart, and that isn't being mindful of where godly wisdom leads us. I think we all have disorder present in our lives. And I think we all have evil practices present in our lives. And the number one way that we see it is not through these three main actions. But I think it's where our personality takes us when we're following Christ or when we're following the flesh. And so that's what I want to do. I want to take a minute and I want to look at our personalities and what they do and how they operate when we're listening to the Spirit and, and we're following the wisdom of God. And I want to compare that to our personalities when we're following the wisdom of the flesh. Now, right now, the Enneagram is really popular. Uh, some of you are smiling already. You're giddy with excitement and you can't wait to talk about it. Some of you have no clue what I'm talking about and that's fine. This is just a personality test. And what I want to do is I'm going to put up what I would say are the nine different types of personalities. For those of you who have taken the test, you'll see your number up there and you can just enjoy to your heart's content. But for those of you who are still clueless, don't worry, you won't be. I'm going to walk us through this. And what I want to point out is that oftentimes our personalities have a stark difference when we're following the wisdom of God compared to the wisdom of the flesh. You see, there's some of us who I would say are principled. We know right and wrong. It is a black and white world. And what a gift that is to share the normative truth of God. That there are so many people in this world who are lost and they need to know what is right and what is wrong. And they need to know that, that God actually offers a gift of morality to us. And yet when this person is principled, begins to follow the flesh, they become intolerant looking at everybody who thinks differently and not seeing someone who needs help, but someone who's an enemy that they need to refute and turn away from. And our selfish ambition actually leads this person rather than to helping someone, to pushing them farther away, to rid themselves of empathy and compassion and become intolerant of anybody who thinks differently. There are some of us who are helpful and we love to give of ourselves. It's fun to serve and to help others. And what a gift that is to this world. These people look like Jesus. And yet in the wisdom of the flesh, they become manipulative. Operating from a quid pro quo type of lifestyle where there really are no gifts in this world. But everything is alone and everything they do actually is expected to be repaid. That's the selfish ambition drawing this person into themselves. Some of us are efficient and effective. We need these people. They are so helpful in organizing and getting things done. And yet, in the wisdom of the flesh, they're willing to exploit anybody just to get ahead. They'll step on anyone and sacrifice anything but themselves in order to make sure they're where they want to be. Some of us are creative and authentic. 
And what a beautiful gift it is that our body has people like this, that they can express the beauty of God in ways that I cannot, that they can demonstrate the wonders and the majesty of our Lord and our creator in ways that I can't even think to do. And yet the scary thing is, is this person in the wisdom of the flesh becomes so self-absorbed thinking that they're the only one who understands it. They're the only one who's this unique and thinks this way. And rather than giving the gift to the world, they hold it for themselves and recluse into themselves. Others of us are innovative. We're critical thinkers. And we know ideas and we can bring it and effect change. And yet... Through the wisdom of the flesh, this person chooses not to share those things because they're skeptical. They're skeptical that anybody really would accept the truth and the the help that they have to offer, and they become more and more isolated as they look to themselves more and more. And then there's people who are loyal. These are the best friends you could ever find. And yet in the wisdom of the flesh, their desire to get ahead because of selfish ambition drives them into fear, and they have a desperate need for certainty. And in that desperate need for certainty, they're actually unable to walk with anybody because they're so afraid of if they might or might not get ahead. And then you have the last three. A seven who's hopeful. This is the enthusiast. This is me. This person sees the glass half full all the time. I don't even have to have a glass there to tell you it's half full. And, and, and in some ways, that can be a real gift. Right? In, in a world filled with hurt and pain, I can offer hope in ways that others can't. And yet under the wisdom of the flesh, what I do is I begin to run away. I begin to uncommit or, or be non-committal to anyone who's feeling any pain because I'm so afraid that if I walk with them, I might actually feel some pain. I might have to admit that sometimes the glass isn't half full. And then there's those of us who are decisive and strong And yet in the wisdom of the flesh, we don't use that to aid others. We disregard others' opinions, thoughts, feelings, and ideas. And finally, there's people here who are peaceful. And we can mediate conflict. We understand how to play the middleman. And rather than using that to bring about peace under the wisdom of the flesh, we completely avoid any conflict. We run away from it and just let people argue and figure it out for themselves rather than using the very gift that God gave us to aid the gospel community. You see, all of a sudden, this idea where envy and selfish ambition exist, there we also find disorder and evil practice. I think it becomes a little more real. The way that we process the world is oftentimes through a wisdom of flesh rather than the wisdom of Christ. Let's stop looking for these big actions where we go, oh, that was an evil practice. Oh, that was disorderly. And let's actually take a moment and look at how we process the world. Look at how our personality plays out when we're following Christ and his wisdom and when we're following the wisdom of the flesh. He then moves back and he begins to show us what real wisdom is. He says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure It's pure, it's unmixed. I love that James says it's pure because if you think of what that means, it means that there is no selfish ambition. There is no bitter envy in the wisdom of God. It is completely pure, humble, and filled with good deeds. And I actually think he gives us a description of what that pure wisdom looks like when he says it's peace-loving, it's considerate, it's submissive, it's full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial and sincere. 
when we look at it in a list, you go, wow, he just gave us a, a bunch of really cool things that a pure wisdom is. But when we really begin to break it down, James is describing someone in their entirety. He says, you want to know what wisdom from God is? It's pure. And do you know what pure wisdom is? It's somebody who in their character and in their disposition is peace-loving through and through. They're considerate and they're submissive. And that leads to actions that are full of mercy and full of good fruit. And that has to take place over time, that they might be impartial and they might show sincerity in every situation. I think James is asking the question or answering the question that he asked at the very beginning, who is wise and understanding among you? He's saying it outright. The person who is wise is the one who in their entire being, in everything they are, in their character, in their actions, in the way that plays, over, plays out over the course of their life, looks like Jesus. Who's wise and understanding among you? It's the one who is humble. Who's wise and understanding among you? It's the one who isn't filled with envy or selfish ambition. Who's wise and understanding among you? It's the one who looks like Jesus. Because godly wisdom is displayed through godly behavior. And that's been James's point this entire series. Look, you don't just get to be a hearer of the word. You also have to be a doer. Faith without works is dead. And in the same way, if you think you have wisdom and you don't show it, you probably don't. Godly wisdom is revealed, is displayed through godly behavior. And what's really neat is we look to Jesus, we see both of these. We see a godly wisdom in the way that Jesus lived his life. And we see godly behavior. What I think is really neat is if you go back to the word that James used for life, either anastrophes or zoe, conduct or existence, we see the godliness in Jesus both in his conduct, his anastrophes, and in his existence, his zoe. Jesus is not just our example. He's also the one that we live in. Jesus isn't the one that we hope to be like. He's the one that makes us like him. And it's for that reason that we remember him as we take communion. It's for that reason, the fact that he did what we couldn't, that we look to him as we partake in the elements. And so for those of you who are serving, go ahead, grab the elements. But this is what I want you guys to do. I want you to receive the elements and hold on to them. We're gonna take these together. We're gonna to sing a song and I'll come back up here and I'll lead us through communion. But as you receive the elements, I want you to think not just about Christ's death because in communion, we don't just remember his death. We also remember his life and his resurrection. Consider as you're holding the bread and as you're holding the cup, how Jesus through his life displayed the wisdom of God and how we too could do the same. Ushers, will you go ahead and pass out the elements? You can listen to this song, you can sing, but just contemplate the life of Christ as we begin to remember his life, death, and resurrection.